my big project right now, which is really, really interesting, is I'm working with an organization and training their AI and behavioral science and phenomenology and psychology and social psychology. So all the areas that I specialize in, I'm training their AI. So they want to be, their big vision is to be a competitor to chat GPT. They're working with other people as well, but that's my major role in their organization right now um, is basically, so rather than just using nudging, which is what I typically do, and then going in and just tearing apart their company and deconstructing like the UN and all this kind of stuff when I'm working with these bigger organizations is, is, is that is, is, is loads of deconstruction, but this one is more teaching. Like it's, it's very academic because you're, you're literally going in and the AI is trying to guess what you are wanting to know about something based on your question. And then they kind of fill in the blanks and then you end up doing a lot of the work. And so this is really interesting. I've been playing with uh, GPT a lot and trying to, view it as a creative partner and a way of eliminating biases, eliminating assumptions, recognizing gaps and having it act as a panel. So for um, you know if I'm trying to convince my investors, I'll pull a panel of you know 10 of the world's toughest hairy assed investors to pick my uh, thesis. <laughs> and what's clear is most people, in the same way in their sales, they don't ask good questions. And if they start with a good question, then they end with the first answer instead yes. of digging deeper. And the net result is you've just got a lot of noise. And you know, um, fools with tools are still fools. And <laughs> the temptation to scale the idiocy has obviously been jumped on because my inbox is just fucking flooded. <laughs> the crap that fills it as well. I mean, it, it's offensively just so wrong. This is meant to be hyper personalized, and someone's selling me an electron microscope, <laughs> X-ray machines. I mean, I've had that yes. more than more than a dozen times. I mean, I think right now we live in 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 a society that needs that idiocy. Like we we. Because otherwise, if we tear back the veil too much, we'll, we'll really be surprised that we created all of this. And we don't like that responsibility. I think we're, in one sense, fetishizing our own irresponsibility. So it's better that we don't know. So let's play ignorant. Let's, let's actually profess to know about the idiocy, but to keep it there. Because if we do do something about it, then we have to be responsible all about changing it. And we don't want that. That's way too much. The people I appeal to, are typically, even uh, early uh, millennials, through late-stage Gen Z, who are principled, they're really ambitious, but let's be honest, they haven't got a f***ing clue. And they were kind of gifted because they grew up in a short period, the, the last seven, eight years, has been pretty good in tech. Um, yeah. And so they grew under the illusion that they were good at selling, that they were successful because of what they did, as opposed to they were fucking lucky to be in the, do uh, you know, the boom. The world was awash with more money than God. It was free. <laughs> and any idiot could raise funding uh, for any cockamamie idea, and you could get a job anywhere. 
And almost anyone <laughs> would buy almost anything because out of fear, the yes. tech space created this arms race, yeah, yeah. where yeah. you bought Gong, so I had to buy Gong or Clarion or something else in order to keep yes. up. And it just became this escalation. We saw this collapse of the market of 18%, 90% in the last seven, eight months because there was no value because it was a bunch of VCs creating financial instruments in order to try and flip them to the next people in the Ponzi scheme and uh, <laughs> convince themselves that they're really good at this shit so they could raise the next fund. And that's when everything turns to shit because at that point they lose any humanity or compassion. Okay? Yes. So the people I'm dealing with live through that and they were successful and they were trained in all the classic medic and, and Sandler and Richardson and Mercury Oval and whatever bollocks. And it's not working anymore because the context has changed and they don't understand that. Okay. So I want yeah. them to see, I, I, I want them to have an epiphany, one moment in our conversation where it triggers, and we work backwards from this, where it triggers that epiphany and they think, oh, fucking hell, yeah, I can do that. And then six months later, they're in a cafe, in a bar, and they're talking to a friend. And they're recounting that moment and the decision and the action they took afterwards. That's what we're working towards. That's what okay. the episode is about. Okay. Okay. It's a big awesome. fuck off brief. Um, I've been doing <laughs> a lot with GPP and prompting it like that. Okay. okay. No, no. I mean, this is, yeah, this is good. This is good. It gives yeah. us a trajectory to shoot for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, yeah, you, no. you get who I'm aiming for. Um, yeah, definitely. And, we want to burst their bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, not only burst their bubble. Uh, but offer them a better future because they, okay. my plan, I'm on a big hairy ass mission, okay? <laughs> Sales management, recruitment, yeah. funding, uh, measurement, compensation are all completely fucking bust. Okay, they're broken. Um, because okay. they're engineered to favor a tiny few and it's brought capitalism practically to its knees. I just yes. listened to uh, Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith, makes a real point, don't give the mercantile class the opportunity to create oligopolies, monopolies, or fuck things over, or else they will. And sure enough, they have. So 300 years ago, you know, the father of modern economics and um, the, the, the man who all the Welchian, um, uh, what's his name, Friedmanite um, oh, yes. uh, you know, acolytes uh, are peddling, and they all yeah. peddle this lie. We exist to um, deliver shareholder value. I've never come across an employee who wanted to go to work to make their already wealthy investors wealthier. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's usually about them and their own wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So they're having to navigate all of this. Okay. They're strong on their values, so they don't want to compromise those, but they're under pressure. It's expedient for them to cut corners, to withhold information, to lie, manipulate, coerce, put under pressure. But they don't want to do that. Uh, They still want to be successful. They're really fucking ambitious and they're clever, but they're intelligently uh, lazy. They want to do that on purpose. It's because everything to them is in a closed system. You know what I mean? Rather than looking at things as perpetual, like success as a perpetual thing, it's, it's a closed system so they could lose it. These guys, they don't mind. They're, they're vulnerable. They're willing to be a fool. 
they don't mind apologizing. They take responsibility. They never run away from the sound of gunfire. They look, go looking for bad news. Um, they, they love fixing shit. And they, they're <laughs> to help. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's, that's who I sell to. That's who I help. Because okay. they're the next generation of leaders. We don't need many of them. We need about 3% to then trigger the 20%. And then everyone else has to follow. Because they're going to eat everyone's lunch. I mean, these guys, I've got one guy I've been working with him eight months, and he's um, 800% of his market ahead of them, and he's 400% ahead of quota uh, in uh, um, selling capital equipment to food manufacturers, and he's not had a new product in eight years. Wow. Yeah. Holy. It's how you sell. It's how you show up. It's your intent. Okay, so you, you, know who, you know who we're appealing to. Um, okay. so that's that's our, good to know. Your brief now is the moment. So think about that moment. Uh, okay. How can we create it? Okay. Uh, you mean just in our conversation, right? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Well, we're working backwards from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of how we, I mean, because um, it's all about exploration. I mean, like a lot of this. So I'm a deconstructor. So for me, I'm looking at like, well, what have what have they done to get to where they are you yeah. know what i mean and what are the beliefs like one of your questions for example was like well what 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 questions you know do you ask or or something along those lines and i'm and i'm just gonna use basic grammar ones the ones the who what where and why because we don't ask those we simply just accept things we accept what is given to us we accept the business models we accept this is the economic um, trajectory that my business is meant to go this is the 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 production process that's meant to be this way and so for me I always look at, you know, answering those questions because, well, I just, I'm a new CEO. I walk into a company. Yeah, but why? Why are you there? Yeah. And then how did you get there? And then what is it to you to be there? And so for me, that's why all of these questions of who, what, where, and why are very, very important questions that you need to never stop asking. And the problem is, is that we get so inundated and interconnected to the status quo that we think that these these elements are just there and so we take them for granted but not that because that that sounds like a little bit nostalgia and what i mean is is that we just accept the what we accept the where we accept the how we accept the like the why rather than okay what got us here why are we here what am i doing with what i have am i being resourceful enough right but also on top of this how am i gauging what brought me here and then what brought me here is what will fuel me into the future. Because if, if I have no why, and I know that this is like basic psychology, you need a why, you need fuel, you need a way in which to drive your behaviors, right? But that why can change. Because again, all of these questions are not in some form of closure, meaning like a why doesn't just stop asking why. A why keep, keeps asking why. The how keeps asking how. The where keeps asking where. It just begets itself. And the problem is that we ask it once and we think, okay, I'm now enlightened enough to actually do what I need to do and I don't need to keep going. And so we suck at the teat of let's just do it the way that it's been done. And so then we have same, the same business model that some are still trying today that's like 50, 70, 80 years old and wondering why they're failing because the culture now doesn't speak that language. My guest today is Jordan Bridget. 
He is a behavioral scientist. He's a coach. He works in the ADHD field. Uh, he's created courses. He focuses on culture, behavior, and applied social psychology and neuroscience. Check out his TEDx uh, talk. Uh, and if you're looking for somebody to really give your sales kickoff or team kickoff um, a bit of intellect and challenge, then uh, invite him on as a speaker about behavior. He specializes in nudge culture, and he's also a comedian and mountaineer. Jordan, that's quite a big build-up. So first of all, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Marcus. I really appreciate you inviting me here. Really looking forward to the conversation. Well, I, I've been nagged by uh, several of uh, the listeners, uh, particularly uh, John Robinson. And um, so I suspect you've had reams of uh, feedback uh, on your post because they're very engaging. And I know John does uh, uh, like a good post. My question really is, you, I mean, how did you get here? You t Talk about, for a couple of minutes, just tell us your history and uh, your uh, your journey, your transformation. Ooh, journey, transformation. Let me see. It all started in a test tube in a hospital in a laboratory somewhere. No, I mean, I. everybody has their story, right? Born in a hospital somewhere. I was actually adopted. This is, this is I'm not going back to that. I mean, the whole story, but. <laughs> that, that was a two minute caveat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is going to be the drive through McDonald's version. So. You know, basically, I always think of history as memory because our identity is really, really wrapped up in our memory. So I always think of memories when people say, you know, share your history. So for me, the memories of me being adopted out of homelessness was very pivotal for me. So that was a huge impact on my identity and self and, and uh, so on. And then I pretty much entered into a very, very eclectic family with a Dutch white mother, a Hispanic father who still doesn't wanna learn English to this day in his nineties and three uh, black American siblings. It was like having the United Nations in our living room. I mean, it was just full uh, on. In fairness, to, in fairness to your dad, he's 90. So yeah, yeah. now the, the time has passed. Uh, he proved yeah. Well, and he taught me a load of Spanish, mostly just the bad words when he got angry. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> and, you know, fast forward, I'm getting pimples, liking girls, didn't like me back. And then I'm in uh, college getting my first degree, which is behavioral science. And then I, I begin deconstructing my own life and beliefs. And, and then I basically find myself in academia and on track to become a professor. And then during that whole trajectory, a professor stops me and says, these are the requirements, you know, which is you're going to have to sell your soul to an academic institution. If that's what you don't want to do, walk away now. And so that was pivotal for me because again, but again, that just meant I now become an independent scholar and work on my master's and so on. And so that's me. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at now where the last six or seven years, I started my own organization company, um, Nudge Culture. So I'm still the CEO of that and working with di several different organizations, worked with the UN, LA film companies, city mayors, worked with the city of Vancouver, worked in India on a city development project. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm actually working with an organization training their AI in the area of behavioral science and phenomenology and psychology and philosophy and social psychology. So it's really, really interesting. But that's a little bit about me. I can't wait to play with that. My wife's not going to be very grateful because um, the, the last three months of rabbit holes down uh, AI 
it's just yeah okay right it's okay. interesting I mean, uh, it's more than interesting. It, yeah. it, what, what, what it's done for me is it's allowed my disorganized mind to be able to capture the three or 400 ideas a day and then systematize them and do something with them. I've lost so many ideas over the years and, and now I can capture them all and I can start playing with them. And if I don't like the direction I can sort of take another direction, and I have my panels of <laughs> neuroscientists and behavioral psychologists and philosophers and investors, and it's just a joy because I've I've never really had the chance to interact with those sorts of people, but their work is out there. Look for the gaps. That's a really interesting thing. You know what what have they missed? It, it does so much work. The possibility have just exploded my imagination which has made me terribly boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm always interested in the social divide that things like this create. So, yeah. you know, I mean, there's loads of fear towards AI. Mm. And some of them might be founded. Most of them are not. Mm. You know, and it does seem to me that there is this, there, there's a knee-jerk reaction with humanity and technology that we that when we first see something we don't understand, we automatically want to go in the way of vilifying it. You see this in like ancient mythology. You see it in the, in the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, uncertainty right? oh. creates the worst case scenario in the brain. Yes. That's its yeah. default setting. Ah, and that's right. So like for me, the default setting though, and this is this could go into a very, very different direction. But for me, I'm very highly suspect. As somebody who's kind of like an armchair in neuroscience, I got my postgrad certificate from Harvard in neuroscience. And one of, one of the things that I'm very suspect is what we know of neuroscience today. One, it's become the cool kid. Like, oh, well, we're hardwired because of this and this and this and this, right? Problem is that the hardwiring is not necessarily hardwiring as being human. It's the hardwiring of the culture that we get interconnected with. Mm -hmm. And so okay. if... Right. Yeah, exactly. And so we're environmental beings. So the problem is, is that people use those as excuses to explain certain biases or certain things. And I'm 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 probably not really a typical behavioral scientist because I don't agree that there's any such bias within us whatsoever. I think we're all containers for culture. So we are basically voids of positive potential. Right. So. I'm very, very much informed by psychoanalytic understanding um, from Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst. And so he basically says that. He says, you know, humans are these ontological voids that are simply... And you might want to define ontological. Yes. So ontological is the essence of something. What is this? And so once we say, what is something? This is a chair. This is a... We're making a claim about that object, but we're also making a claim of the potential of that object as well. Okay, so extend that ontology to when people find that they have a void in themselves because they're having to override their values because fundamental needs are not being met. Well, I would say, actually, if you find a void in yourself, you found yourself. <laughs> what, okay. what, so well, in, in that case, define void. So again, a void is simply just, well if I can go back to the containers of culture, like basically what we do is since we're environmental beings and I'm using the word culture as broad as I can. So I'm including environment, but I'm also including childhood conditioning, uh, life experiences, traumatic moments, whatever it is that makes us who we are, we take those on and we identify with them. 
the memories that you have, which may or may not be accurate based on the uh, limited model of the world you had at that moment. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, this is where neuroscience is good because it does say that every time you access a memory, it changes every single time. So you're never accessing it the same memory anytime, uh-huh. even more than once, right? It actually changes. So, which really messes with the idea of identity because our identity, even when you try to understand it from a neuroscientific standpoint, is something that really does access, for example, and there's more here, by the way, but it does access an area known as the hippocampus. And then that also upregulates the basal ganglia, which is your physical movement. So there is a whole system within you that says, you've had this experience before, and this looks like this experience, so you're gonna act very similarly, unless you change that, right? Unless you change the pattern. So we are simply just beings of pattern. And within that, we just simply keep repeating the habit. So for me, when I look at Groundhog's Day, it's not just about living life through the same pattern and, oh, that's just a critique against capitalism and so on and so forth. It's really a, a, a critique about human hardwiring. We don't have to live that way. So if you're meeting or if you're encountering somebody who is going through a hard time, you know, going back to your original question or going through depression or whatever, and they're kind of staring back into the void, I would say sit there like and and, you know, do what you need to do if you need to take medicine or if you need to be practical about that, whatever it is, do that. But but actually sit there. You know, I'm very intrigued by Carl Jung, who took three to four months and he actually journaled and his experience while he was letting his unconscious just go without judging it, without giving it meaning. And even at sometimes he would even say, listen, I, I, I freaked myself out. And he, and he would take a week off and then he would, and then he would come back. We don't do that enough because the problem is, is we have so much in our culture that inundates us with the inability to question what we're experiencing. Right. right? So let's just unpack some of this because it's really important. If I'm hearing you correctly, the time that we take to reflect is crucial. And often we don't really understand why we do things. And unless we take the time to reflect, the chances are we're just going to fall into patterns of habit that we have accumulated, um, inherited, borrowed, uh, and occasionally developed intentionally. And if we uh, allow ourselves to not reflect and just be dragged along, there is no hope of change. Yes, yes, yeah. Reflection, I think, is step one. And that's why why for me is a big question. It isn't a small question of just, I'm trying to be annoying, it's why? Why am I here? But also, why am I experiencing this? What is brought me? It's also the stepping back and um, taking time for pause. Yes, which we think we're doing that today. We think, oh, you know what? Let's let's embrace mental health. Let's with an app embrace it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So we think we're these massively huge advocates, and I'm not against this, by the way. So I'm as as somebody who works in the areas of mental health, but what I do find is that it's become the cool kid. It's become the, hey, this makes me look good as a company because now my company culture is embracing this area, but nobody knows what they're doing. And all it is is mental health under the guise of mental health. It makes this look good. And it's the practice of doing nothing. It's the practice of performance over action, which one leads to change and the other one is just, I'm playing a role. Why is it that the people around who recognize it's going on don't club together 
because instinctively, you know, at, at the moment, I don't know about you, but it does feel like we are coming to the end of a cycle. And it does feel remarkably reminiscent if one looks back at history about 100 years back. You know, Ukraine and Spain, 1922-23, the Great Resignation happened back then, it happened now. And seven years later, we found ourselves in the depths of the 1929 Great Crash. You know, you're listening to, if you're listening to the likes of Charlie Munger and um, and a lot of others, that, you know, they're, they're telling the, us that we're coming to a major crash. The debt ceiling issue in the States could be the trigger because most of the US mid-market banks uh, are regional and don't have capacity to stand it. And even uh, and the number of people, because we didn't learn from the last 20 years about bad debt, <laughs> Um, and we just repackaged it in different ways, and we we bailed these Egypts out. So we don't seem to learn, but now it's all coming home to roost because we printed more dollars in the last twenty years than in throughout all of history. I think mean, it's in the last two years it might have been. So we've brought ourselves to on the edge of a precipice. My question, uh, I suppose, getting there is how do we recognize? Uh, sorry, how, how do we recognize? when we're being dragged down into the abyss? And what do we need to do to ensure that collectively we stand up to this idiocy? I think first and foremost, one, that's a very, very good question. And I don't know if there's one specific answer because I always, I always it's think- It's a wicked problem. Right, it's but I mean, problem. I always think- There are loads of answers. They work yeah. in So that's what I'm after really. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, cause I always think that there's a multiplicity of ways of going about something, but. I think, you know, to use one of the words in uh, one of your questions, because I love the word blind spot. One, because we get taught that blind spots are the problem. I think the blind spots are the solution. So especially when you think about what we're doing with, with human perception. So I'm going to kind of take a step back and then kind of go yeah, and, please, please, please. and uh, respond. So basically, when we understand blind spots, the first thing that I think of is the neuroscience of blind spots, meaning when we're looking even in a room, all of the research shows that we're filling in gaps. We're constantly filling in the gaps by what? Expectation, by anticipation, by our own coded like experiences, by our own conditioning, by our own childhood, like understanding of the world. So I will always come back to that because I don't care who the CEO is, right? It could be Bill Gates. He's still influenced by his own childhood experiences, right? And so when we talk about blind spots and when we talk about it, trying to understand it, I think we need more blind spots because the problem is what we're doing is with those blind spots is we're filling them in with the status quo. And then what we do is we create these bureaucratic processes and we create language and we create gatekeeping behaviors that keep us from ever looking behind the curtain, right? To see the real wizard that's playing all of this, which is us. We're the ones who created all of this. So everything that we call a mess isn't some deity that's out there. It's us playing with the dirt and mixing things that shouldn't be mixed together. And it's, it's looking at it from, again, what I was saying earlier was that we fetishized irresponsibility. And so we need to actually pull back and actually remove the desire to fill in the blind spots. Because even if we inherently neuroscientifically are always trying to fill in rooms because our perception in, in, in and of itself is inherently limited, then we need to do the opposite of that. 
And, and I think one way to do that is one, understand that we've got ourselves here discursively. Like everything is a form of discourse. Everything is a form of, of talking about something, but that is informed by a history that has got us to where we are now. And the problem is, is that people, we really reify or kind of worship history. And then we wonder why we're repeating it. So in one sense, we kind of need to become atheistic towards our own history. We need to stop believing in it. We need to stop thinking. Well, is okay, it history or is it nostalgia and patriotism? Well, so both. Both that's, because, that's all tribal as yes, opposed to looking yeah. back at the facts. Yeah, exactly. Because the problem with the facts is they're part of the blind spot. And they're right? also and so, in a narrative. That's what I'm really getting at, is yeah. that we're, we're really reliant on that narrative. And so we say, well, that's the way they did it. And we're, all we're doing is building upon it. So we even create phrases that really romanticize us. So to actually go back to your idea of nostalgia, we, we turn nostalgia into like the maternal and paternal figure of how we model our behavior now. And we always say, well, don't forget the, um, the shoulders of those giants that you're standing on. Well, really, all that is is just another way of saying, don't change. We don't want to innovate as much as they did. We want to actually just reinvent it, right? And so really with history, all we're going to be doing, if we keep reifying it, worshiping it and looking at it and looking at it through a nostalgic lens, right? The, um, the kind of rosy retrospective, you know, looking back on like, oh, this is so cool. By the way, that's happening now. I mean, like there's a huge resurgence and love of the 90s when I was a teenager, you know, and I'm like, well, listen, we need to stop like looking at that as a model for now, because all we're going to keep doing is always have these residual after effects of what was already there, which worked for there and then and now we need something else completely and utterly different that really caters to our culture now, or at least the culture of the future, right? Well, so kind of like, like a future self, but in the social sense. This then brings us back to something you said um, in the green room, which was um, uh, that people have a tendency to overreact to technology. I think there's a tendency to react to the headline of the moment and then try and overcompensate. And then you have to swing it back because every business, every country, every organization, they're an organism. They're, they're a system. And you have inputs and outputs and you have stock. So if you think of it like a bath, you've got the, uh, the tap and the water coming in and plug with the water coming out. Now, you're sat in the bath and you want to sit there nice and toasty, but it starts to cool off. So you, you know, move the uh, plug with your toe, then you turn the water on, but there's a little bit that cold that comes out. So you pull your legs back and hope that it drops down uh, into the, uh, the plug hole. Uh, and then you're filling it up and it takes a while and takes a while and then it gets very hot. But because of the cold, you overdo it and you overfill it. So it goes into the overflow. All this time, you've got systems where if there's too much input, you get bottlenecks. And if there's too little throughput, you get inefficiencies. And if there's too much outflow, you end up with uh, parts of the operation being starved. So the problem is that people don't see the intersection. And what I'd really like to be able to do is help people understand that if they start to question and they do so in a, a respectful way so that they don't end up with repercussions, then they can start to question power. Um, but 
Well, they they have they have to try and do that without getting it in the neck themselves. So I would love a little bit of guidance for me and the audience uh, on how you you might suggest that we do that. So how do we lessen the bottlenecking? Is that what you're asking? No. How do we speak truth to power in a way okay. that allows us to um, have a voice, okay. be heard? but not be punished for being uh, for having that voice. Yes, okay. So there's actually two two things. <laughs> I always I always feel like I'm really really taking these huge large ideas and be like, "All right, we're just going to make them really small and digestible." But there's way more to it. And yeah. so there's there's two things. One is realizing that not only is knowledge is power, but that power is knowledge. And to heterotopia. So this is how I think we can model change. And that's really, really- Can you define what you mean by heterotopia? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was gonna start with the powers knowledge and then move into, if that's all right. So what I mean by that is when we look, when I was saying earlier, everything is discursive. So discursive is just another way of saying, there was a discourse about this one time. And the way in which we define our, the way that we relate to each other is through not just discussion, because discursiveness means there is a discussion or there is an idea or an ideology that leads to action. So discursiveness means we somewhere along the lines got these ideas, whether we call it history and, and we're being discursive with history or we're being discursive with technology or science or neuroscience, whatever the subject matter is, whatever we're interacting with is now making itself influenced right within us. And so we are being influenced by these things. Now, that's so realizing that, that we can actually invert that. So we can say, okay, listen, if this is what brought us here, then we need new discussions. We need new ways of thinking. We need to either invert or completely annihilate the uh, baby in the bathwater. In fact, sometimes you might need to drown the baby in the bathwater. And so you need to get rid of certain ideas that are just not working, but we need to be okay with that, right? And the problem is, is that when you speak truth to power in that way, if somebody comes in and says, well, I just want to drown the baby in the bath of water, then of course that's that's not going to work, right? Okay. That's just not going to work. But when you begin bringing in new ways of discussing and new ideas that lead to action, obviously, right? So there's always a measurable output, right? That will lead to some sort of different model. Well, that leads to heterotopia because basically this is an idea from Michel Foucault and he is a uh, French, well, was a French philosopher. Essentially, what his model is this, is that you don't change from the outside. Change comes from the inside, but what you do is you invert the power tools. So whatever is being used to actually create what we now call the status quo or the norm or whatever isn't working, you then go ahead and invert those and you end up using them to create a community from within and you spring up from within. Because one, you're going to show whoever is in power this thing works, this new model works. So then it's not just a pipe dream, right? But then you actually get people on board who are with you, who are integrated into not just your vision, but it's now a a collective vision and it's a participatory vision. It's an interactive way of being. So again, it's not an idea, it's not a pipe dream because you're actually enacting it. You are literally playing the role of the new person who's offering the new way of being. I have a partner, uh, Gary Mitchell, who has worked in private equity for about 35 years. 
Um, and he does turnarounds for PE. And in all that time, he's never once failed to deliver the intended outcome. And he wow. follows that. Pro in fact, his model is almost word for word what you described. That is awesome. It's fascinating. How does it work for him? I mean, like, I mean, how? Well, 35 years of every single time delivering the intended outcome from the project um, is a pretty good track record. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of taking something that might initially be seen as oppressive, right? And then looking at it from a different angle, like a parallax angle, which is like, you know, that's just a film term, a filming term, you know, but looking at it from a side angle and saying, well, how can we use this? So rather than looking at it as, well, this is just the way things are, because that's, that's our typical stance on things. How do we change the status quo? Well, that's just the way we do it. Right. And so nobody wants to change it because, again, and this is why I was saying earlier, we fetishize irresponsibility. It's better. And 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 here's the thing. This is going to sound really weird. I think we feel powerful in our irresponsibility. And what I mean to imply is that we gain a sense of self and identity because we already know we can't do anything. So when we think that we can't do something it becomes part of who, who we are and the mechanism of the way in which we participate in our own lives. And so then we think, well, the more and more I can't do something, I can do something else that I don't necessarily want to be doing, but I, I know that I can do it. So what we do is we avoid our powerfulness and we actually find our power and our powerlessness. And so we found a, find a sense of self and that gives us a sense of safety. Right? Because really, if you look at this from an evolutionary standpoint, every little act that we do is about self-preservation. But then we find our power and our powerlessness as a form of self-preservation. If I well, don't do anything, it, then there's no threat. Is, is it just about the powerlessness or is it about then the collective victimhood of the tribe? Because there, I can't remember who said it, but there's a wonderful quote I uh, often uh, left, which is people will do anything for those who encourage their dreams justify their failures, allay their fears, confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. I see this online. My friend Simon Bowen has a beautifully simple model. At the bottom of the food chain, there are pill pushers, and they basically sell on price, and it's always a race to the bottom. Then the next level up is subject matter experts, and these people sell their shtick, and because basically, None of them can sell, and they all sound much the same. It's the sort of um, yeah, cold calling is dead, no use email, no use content, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And they all have an axe to grind. And they eventually, because they can't sell, end up becoming pill pushers. The next level up are the hero sellers. And the hero sellers basically attract people who are angry. And so uh, the, the, the ones online, you see them, and they, they throw punches and they're, they're constantly trying to be controversial and what they're doing is they're attracting a tribe of other people who are disaffected just like you described uh, simon describes that there's a massive gap between the hero seller and the sage seller people come to the hero for their strength because they want to feel protected people come to the uh, sage seller for their wisdom in the hope some of it will rub off and yeah. That gap is what you're describing the challenge that people then face when they're 
wallowing in um, their suffering and treating it as a virtue. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. We're fetishizing our own victimhood. Yeah, we we actually find power in it, and that's what I mean when I say fetishize. Like I'm using that in the old anthropological way, where they used to imbue it with the powers of the gods, and and but what we're doing is we're imbuing it with the power of meaning. We're imbuing it with well, and and with a linear path of justifications, right? I'm here because of this, and this is, and that's really to me that's what the status quo is. We're 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 fetishizing history. This is the way they've done it. This is the way we need to do it and, and, and uh, so on. And we've created justified and romanticized language around it. And then we also create pathways and actual practical things that you can point to in, in society to where we're like, nope, this is the way we do things. There's something buzzing in my head around story and narrative that seems to be really critical to this. So talk to me about the importance of internal chatter and how that affects habit. Okay. So again, yeah, I mean, even looking at this whole conversation and everything starts there, everything starts there. I mean, and internal chatter though is also birthed by external influences. Inherited inherited beliefs, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, right? So a lot of our language about ourselves isn't really about ourselves. It's borrowed. And so a lot of our inner chatter is us really fighting against a lot of the limiting and the, uh, the limiting beliefs and the, and, and the limitations of that inner chatter. I'm not this. I am that. I am this. This is what I do. This is what I don't do. And right. So we're <laughs> so it almost seems like we're in this never ending endless struggle, but really against ourselves. And in one sense, you are because there's two selves that are always at war. It's kind of like the Jungian, like, here's the angel and here's the demon but the demon is your conditioning and the angel is who you really would like to be, right? And so, you know, Jacques Lacan calls that the ego and the ego ideal, which happens in the mirror stage, which is this huge radical moment that he argues that everybody goes through from the years, from sorry, from six months to a year and a half. And that is literally where you are standing in front of a mirror and you, you begin to disassociate from the mother as your sense of wholeness, completion and happiness, because that's who you were stuck to. So at one point, you only see yourself as this kind of deconstructed self of arms and head and legs, and because that, that's all you can see. And then you end up having this ideal ego that is created and birthed out of this moment of, whoa, that's not me. And I'm this person, which really fundamentally creates this existential anxiety that, according to Lacan, you can never get rid of, right? I mean, that you basically live with throughout your whole life, and you actually fundamentally live through. You never, ever lose that anxiety. You are constantly birthing yourself and rebirthing yourself out of the anxiety. So the internal mechanisms or the internal language or the internal speaking that we're doing is really us constantly trying to allay our inner existential anxiety. Okay. So this makes me think then. (laughs) Okay. No, no, no. It's good because it's nice to have to pause. Okay. So if we think about at a meta level. So we're thinking at a geopolitical level. Yes. I I look at what's going on at the moment and I look at a war in Europe, the hangover of the pandemic, the polarization of society. There seems to be a pattern and uh, whether it's at a meta level, a macro level or a micro level, these patterns seem to be repeating themselves. 
And that's my argument for paying attention to history. It's not the idolization, because let's face it, most of the heroes were psychopathic. People we've given uh, put statues up to, uh, yeah, just slaughtered you know, thousands of people, and yeah, you, know, you got a you got a bronze for it. That's all you could get for gold. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> or something. So when I look at it, that, well, there's a model that I got introduced to about eighteen months to two years ago called Spiral Dynamics. Oh yes, yes. And uh, right, okay. So you're familiar with it. For those who aren't familiar with it, the spiral dynamics is um, essentially Maslow's hierarchy of needs taken on steroids. And the basic premise is that as you move up the spiral, you can bring with you all the resources you had in the lower uh, levels of the spiral. And you can make sense of one level above you, and you can sort of make vague sense of two levels above. Now, there's good and bad to each level. so. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've got survival, security, belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization. With spiral dynamics, you've got survival, then tribal, then you've got power, you've got order, you've got winning, then you've got sort of collegiate uh, type of environment, then you've got innovation. Now, as you go up the spiral, you can bring both the bad and the good. And so the challenge is to create the conditions that encourage the good and discourage the bad. Because typically what happens is as you go through the spiral, uh, the good, too much of a good thing in the lower rung part of the spiral, then creates the conditions for its own demise and the next generation comes along. So in the red level, which is about power, it's brilliant at the beginning because the tribal lot became, you know, basically stultified and hit inertia and nothing happened. So someone strong comes along and says, let's do this. And they all say, this is a bloody good idea. And they all jump on the bandwagon until he becomes an ass. And then they have to constrain. <laughs> him. And that's when power, uh, order comes in. And Charles II would be a, a good example of this. Um, you know, they lose their heads. Um, and we, we, it feels like we're coming to that the end of that cycle again, where there is a lot of unrest and disorder because of the polarization um, and people being stuck in the moment, reacting to the headline of the moment, all the things that you were talking about. And I'm just very curious how we can maybe employ some of these models to help us encourage the better side of each of the uh, the levels of the spiral so that those all start working together? Or am I being wildly idealistic? No, 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 no. Listen, I I mean, I'm, I'm very much like you in that regard. So I'm very optimistic about certain things. It sounds like even when I just shared Rakan's work that I would just go dark, but it isn't because I I see when because that that idea of us being voids of positive potential, that's that's actually from Lacan's work, but it's positive potential. That means there is loads of exploration that haven't been done. This is why I keep coming back and attacking the status quo, because it, it just keeps us with tunnel vision. And so I think using the kind of model from, and of course, I like to mix and match. So a, a little bit of, I would say, Lacan's work with the spiral dynamics you know, and understanding that there are certain instincts that 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 drive us, but not even necessarily evolutionarily speaking, right? Because again, evolution tends to be very, very kind of one single note, right? 
but that there, there are some good models that we can extract from it that we can apply to this, which means adaptation. And the problem is, is that adaptation to many people when they hear that word is change and then change begets fear. But the problem with that is because we've coded ourselves. So when I say we've coded ourselves, I'm not saying we're inherently that way. I'm saying we have created a historical mapping of human behavior that shows, look at. So I'm the, looking at that's the narrative we run, we believe the story in our head. Exactly. So we believe that the only response to change has to be fear, right? Because we have, well, look at, look at our forefathers, right? People look at, look at. Uh, Jordan, people don't fear change. They fear uncertainty. There was a meta study of 330 studies on mankind's greatest fear, and it came out the future because with it comes uncertainty. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And because um, th- if, uh, so the reason why Gary is always successful is he creates certainty and he creates a pathway working backwards from where they're going to be um, for the job to be done, the three-year outcome or whatever. And he creates multiple sprints that are led by the people who are at the sharp end of the shitty end of the stick. Then within six months, they have to hit their milestones so that it sells the credibility to the rest of the organization that actually we're on the right path. Yes. Yeah. That's well, good leadership. Yeah. Well, and I mean, see, I would I would actually say that change and uncertainty are part of the same spectrum. Mm-hmm. So meaning, meaning like one and and there isn't a, a, a one breeding the other. It's that they are in kind of a non-binary way, like a Mobius strip, where they're kind of like one side, there it looks like there's two sides of it, but it's actually all one, right? And so it's, it's, so what we, what appears to us, so like, for example, as if there's a difference between change and uncertainty is really ultimately something that is actually just intermingled together. And the reason why I say it that way is because when people hear of change, many people, at least the ones that I've dealt with, and maybe it's because I'm dealing with them in different contexts of like, you know, dealing with like when, when I was in India, dealing with a whole community of people in, in, in poverty, to them, uncertainty is the way of life, mm-hmm. right? They don't know exactly what's going to happen next. But it does seem that even our culture, sometimes we unite uncertainty with change. We hear the word change, and we're like, we don't know what that means. And so then automatically, it automatic. okay, well, I don't, I don't know what that means, and I don't know what to do with it. Isn't that normally down to uh, really poor communication? Uh, ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. Um, yeah. And, uh, clarity's king on this front. Well, and you're bringing up something else as well, like very, very important, uh, which is the reframing. There was this research project done, and they followed these people over five years, and they were testing their telomeres. So if you don't know what telomeres are, telomeres are basically the caps on the end of our cells. And they begin dying and decaying and aging as we age, right? And it actually is one major cause of aging. So what they did is they tested their telomeres. So one group, they said, okay, over here, every time you go through um, um, something uncertain or a big, big life change or anything that you really weren't expecting, we want you to call it opportunity. We want you to call it excitement. We want you to call it adventure. And over here, when those same things happen to you, we don't want you to do anything. So after the five years, as they're mapping all of this out throughout, you know, the five years, they notice a trend. Those that did nothing, their, their telomeres just died and decayed and did their thing. These ones did not. 
And so I think, you know, you're bringing up something that I think is extremely important, which is the power of reframing. Reframing on even a social, I think, level could even have these neuroscientific benefits, right? Where we end up seeing, and I don't, I really don't like the word reframing because it sounds too cartoonish. It sounds very one-dimensional. But if you reframe it and you reframe it long enough, you begin to believe it because we're creatures of habit. So we begin actually saying, oh, wait, wait. So this is, so back to your idea of uncertainty. Like, I think the major reason why we suffer and struggle with uncertainty is because we don't call it anything else. We just call it uncertainty. And that that little research project shows that we don't have to believe that people have to be fearful of uncertainty. We've well, just been coded that way. Right. But again, this comes back down to the ambiguity and um, a really important lesson that I'm learning uh, the hard way is the importance of shared definitions and, yes. and uh, common language, because you can mismatched expectations because of ambiguity um, are just so common. And you can't blame the other person for not understanding when you haven't taken the time, either of you, to clarify. And the, I, I think people are in such a hurry all the time. And it keeps coming back to that bang on lesson, which is you've got to spend time in reflection. You've got yeah. to pause. And you've got to think, look around and see what's actually happening because most of the time, uh, certainly in my work, when people come into a problem, their first reaction is, oh, the sky's falling on my head. Then they feel victimized and it's so unfair because they get dragged into this drama triangle. And you know, I'm doing my best. No one yeah, 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 yeah. bastards. And yeah, before you know it, you're in World War III. Well, th- there's no need for it because if, we if we were to stop and think, well, is there a better way? And yeah. I, that question is driving pretty much all of my work now because Amazing. wherever I look, there's almost nothing that cannot be improved. Yeah. Then you have to work out what's worth improving and prioritise the stuff that matters. But yeah, I, I look at the overemphasis of finance, data, technology at the expense of customers, relationships, employees, society, and it skewed everything. And there's no need for it. And I think there's, there is there are enough people out there of like mind who don't want that to be the case anymore. So th- this is a sort of clarion call to them. You know, th- I'm really looking for some help. How do we galvanize these people to say enough is enough? I think... When we're asking for people to, to, to change things, when we're seeking for power outside of us, I think that's problem one. I think, yes, we do have models. We have very old models based in hierarchy, right? We have voting, we have presidents, we have all of this kind of stuff that gives us kind of a sense of virtual power. But at the end of the day, really, and this is where Foucault's idea of heterotopia puts all of the power back onto the people. So, so rather than it now. So heterotopia is heterogeneity, right? All of these kind of different contributing voices, contributing views, contributing ways of doing things, and then mixed with the word utopia. So heterotopia, right? And so you are banding together and you're creating 
these micro communities that are starting to model. So again, and the reason why I really hyper-focus on that word is this is not a theoretical philosophical idea, right? You talk about ecosystems in effect. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Creating an ecosystem that either inverts the, the tools of oppression as tools of novelty that bring novel ideas and that really, really look at power as distributive, not as hierarchical and power as shared. So again, the, my, my mind goes to, and I know this is a very Marxist way of doing things, but really my power is, I mean, our, my model for power or using power to change things isn't to look to those in power, hmm. right? Is to actually look to ourselves and to look to our own internal locus of control, our own internal sense of self and sense of agency. Well, it's the only thing we actually have any agency over. Yes. I mean, the, yes. The, what, one of the most painful but useful lessons, which I wish I'd learned much earlier on, is instead of bitching about the constraint, Accept it positively and then work th- work with within the constraint and still aim to get your outcome. I've, I've got a, a client at the moment who has uh, to try and change the way the entire organization sells and he's got no power. So the question we were p- uh, pondering yesterday is how do we achieve the job to be done with the founder's blessing and with no diminution in either service um, or uh, values, and still achieve our financial objectives. Now, that's an interesting question. Difficult. No one said it would be easy. But I don't think people are bothering to ask the right questions. Yes. In fact, I don't think there's any questions at all. This is why we don't see change. This is why history is a linear path rather than something that's just trying to thrown together is because we're looking at these. We look at change and growth as a linear path. But if you really think about even your own life, even if you use your own life as a model, when when did you ever change linearly? Like, oh, I mapped out this change and and look, at it It all was because of this moment. And, and no, it doesn't happen that way. So why is it that we think that 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 which we're humans, and we're all humans working on these different models, why would we think that that would be any different if we're trying to actually enact change on a social level? Well, you you touched on it earlier as well, and I forgot to pick up on it, which is that the best argument for diversity is range of thought on the same problem so that you don't end up letting your individual biases and echo chamber uh, control it. You take into account other scenarios that you would never conceive of. I mean, this is one of the most exciting things about the AI is that uh, we can now get it to look at scenarios that we'd never normally consider. As my creative partner, I've found it utterly invaluable because it's forcing me into areas or it's taking me into areas that I'd forgotten about or I'd overlooked or I never knew about, and that's expanded into other areas. What's even more fascinating is when you start looking at um, the modeling potential and the ability to create powerful, replicable frameworks, it's breathtaking. This is where I'd love to maybe uh, wrap the conversation up uh, in terms of how uh, we can use technology as a partner, as a force for good. That's a great question. I think first and foremost, pulling back a little bit, and looking at the fact that we don't have to fear technology. 
No. And there isn't some inherentness towards looking at technology as something that is going to be against our own progress, right? I mean, at the end of the day, even as somebody who is training AI, what really dawned on me during the whole process was like, wait a minute, if there's fear of AI and I'm the one who's training it, we're not fearing the AI, we're yeah, fearing ourselves. We're, yeah, we're, we're creating the yes, exactly. We're creating the, the situation itself. Well, yeah, the, so, the problem with the internet, though, is full of, uh, you know, wrong-minded individuals as well as individuals. Apocalyptic, yeah. <laughs> I think if we go the other way, so rather than looking at it as something as out, outside of us, I think, but as an extension of us, I think that's a better, very romantic, I get it, way of looking at it. But think about this. If I'm looking at my phone and I have my community on my phone and I have my social media on my phone and I have my tasks on my phone, it is an extension of who I am right? It is part of who I am. And so I think rather than, again, embracing the fear, embrace the possibilities of extending ourselves out in a different form and begin asking much deeper questions of, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so what does the future look like that doesn't fear it, but actually embraces technology as an extension of self? Would you come back to do that episode? Yes, of course. That would be amazing. Let's wrap that into the wrap up at the end. Okay. That's a really interesting. Uh, I, I think the, the issue when the telephone arrived and when the motor car arrived and when the internet arrived and when e commerce and websites and all that shit and uh, crypto and whatever, we've predicted the end of um, sales and the end of the world. And yeah, I've been guilty of it. So, you know, in all fairness. So, um, <laughs> But it strikes me that we are survivors. And unless we do something really stupid, and God knows we're pretty good at getting close to that. Um, but even then, we're like cockroaches. We can't, we have a tendency to survive. So I think things will change. I don't think it's going to be easy. And I think there'll be winners and losers. But the ones who respond best to the situation by accepting it positively and recognizing that the agency that they do have means that the only locus of control that matters is the one from within, and that they take responsibility, and then they start clubbing together ecosystems. And I'm seeing this on places like WhatsApp. WhatsApp is um, full of communities that are high challenge, high support. I'm building an ecosystem. John and I are part of an ecosystem, and it's about 100 different providers, all of whom believe that basically it's not really working very well and that if we work together, we can build resilience and eventually we can build a circular economy. But more importantly, what we end up doing is building way more value for our customers because any conversation we have can go in any number of one of 100 different ways based on what they need. Because it's not about us. It's really interesting playing with this, but it's still very early days and quite difficult. So um, if you can help me, I'd be very grateful because I'm completely at, at lost at sea most of the time. Um, okay. Of course. Um, thank you. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, to sort of um, broaden their understanding? I would recommend people read How Emotions Are Made by Linda Barra. Essentially because... We have to understand that one, we are emotional beings, but then two, on top of that, realizing how they orchestrate our lives 
and how they help us navigate or sometimes how they help us limit our perception of reality and our perception of what we're going through and how we're experiencing it when we're going through and what our resources are and so on. I think fully understanding that, for example, emotions aren't, aren't actually who we are, according to her research. And she's a neuroscientist. It's just a very, very interesting thing on human emotion. And if you're really, really, really adventurous, jump into the work of Jacques Lacan. I will say this, you need a map. It took me about three and a half years <laughs> to actually fully grasp what he was saying. He's basically taken Freud's work, thrown in a whole kind of area of semiotics that he himself has made up of, and then is trying to understand the internal world of what it means to be human. And, you know, those are two, I think, books that I would encourage people. Well, the reason why two and not five is because those two books alone will probably feel like you're reading five. <laughs> <laughs> the content is so dense, you know. Maybe unpack it uh, for using GPT first. and um, uh, play. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. How, how can people get hold of you? So I'm all over social, but my main kind of home for what I do and for Nudge Culture and for updates on that and working on three books myself is basically on LinkedIn. So just Jordan Bridger, LinkedIn. If it says Nudge Culture, then you're at the right place. But that's really, really what a lot of where I either update the work I'm into or kind of musings on society or human behavior or behavioral science. And can you give us 90 seconds on Nudge Culture? Yes. So Nudge Culture is obviously a business. It's a distributed one, which means I'm training people all over the world to use it. And it's a model. And um, so it is a business and I do coaching and I have done business consultancy. Like I said earlier, I worked with the UN doing that. But, but what basically, problems do you solve? So, okay. So one, I use behavioral science. So well, and that's the thing. I don't have, whereas a lot of these behavioral sciences really focus on economics, I try to do the exact opposite because, you know, for me, it's just human behavior. Yeah. So, you know, I have worked with businesses and I've used nudge nudges to actually help them optimize business practices. My passion, my interest and in what really our focus is, is either on human rights or shifting social, like social behaviors. And so that's where a lot of my passion lies. But very differently, I don't go in with the assumption that there's a bias in place where most nudge people do, most behavioral scientists do. So my thing is, first step is, what's wrong? Why have you gotten here? Because you certainly have beliefs and values and systems in place that are very much ingrained by your own conditioning and the conditioning of those that you've created a network with. And we need to actually unpack that. So then we might move to nudging, but we deal with that first in the first three to six months. Excellent. Jordan Bridger, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, and I'd be amazed if you haven't, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And please tag two, three, four, five people who would benefit from listening to this, particularly leadership. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-laughs.com or click the link in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.